This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Uh, there are no shortages of, uh, of controversial issues here. We are just talking about LRT just a few minutes ago with Blake Oliver from the, the McMaster uh, Students' Union. Uh, and there's a big rally about that coming up at City Hall on the weekend. There is another one that I don't think you're going to see a rally with city councilors involved in, and that's the ward boundary issue, uh, which uh, city council has been uh, kicking down the road for years and years and years. Uh, we can get into some of the logistics of that, consultants' reports and, uh, and money spent and, and advice uh, ignored, and on it goes. But finally, uh, somebody has decided to do something about this. Uh, Mark Richardson is a Ward 9 resident who has filed a petition now with the Ontario Municipal Board to deal with this. Uh, Mark joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. First of all, thanks for coming in today. Bill, thanks very much for having and, and paying uh, so much attention to this important issue. All right. What motivated you to do this? I mean, because, you know, you've heard the debate at City Council, Mark, and most of the councillors say, you know, no, nobody even really cares about this. Well, clearly you do. The unfairness of it, Bill, just the, the, the disparity in population distribution. We're talking about a four-to-one ratio sometimes in some of these wards. Um, and it, it's a diluted vote for people in some of the mountain wards. Um, and I really think back during amalgamation, there was a lot of wisdom in having our current ward structure. There was a lot of division, and I think it was a good way to start. But there was directive to change that, and now we've been 16 years. You know, I was on council, as uh, you and I were just talking before that. It was uh, re-elected in, in the year 2000 when the new council was elected. And uh, the reasoning that we were given at the time, because there was a lot of speculation that the transition team uh, was going to actually change the ward boundaries as well. Uh, and they actually even took submissions on this. But Dave O'Brien, who was a, a guy that from Mississauga, I believe, uh, was uh, they kind of seconded him over here to kind of oversee the amalgamation part of this. And his rationale for the map that we see today was basically, look, at this amalgamation thing has already been a pain in the ass to so many people. Enough is enough. We don't want to make a, a bad situation worse. But you guys are going to have to do something about it in a couple of years. Okay, yeah, we'll do that. Well, here we are 17 years later. And it's disappointing, and, and it's uh, disappointing that, you know, population of Hamilton has had to push for this. You know, it's been on the table for council for years, and, and you get comfortable. A councillor gets comfortable. I can understand that. Um, the reason I decided to, to do this OMB um, appeal is they're not dealing with the problem. We have five wards that are failing on the grade as far as population distribution. The new bylaw that they've passed now has seven wards failing. So we're going the wrong direction, but we're failing better, So, which I find is a little funny. I don't find that uh, enthusiastic. It, it's, it's bothersome the way they handle it. Now, see, and I've been vocal about this and uh, for many, many years now. Uh, you know, the last time they tried to do something about this, and they kicked it down. Well, well, wait for the new council to do it. Well, the new council is them, uh, you know, because 99% of the time they all get reelected. So it's really just abdicating their responsibility to do this. But here's the thing. I don't think city councilors should be involved in drawing up board boundaries, just like I don't think city councilors should give themselves a raise. Uh, you know, they take an oath when they're sworn into office at the beginning of each term, and it talks about conflict of interest. Well, that's a blatant conflict of interest because your your own self-interest and your political interests are, 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 are right there on the table. I mean... You know, if you, well, you live in Stony Creek, okay? If you were on city council and they said, okay, Mark, redraw the boundaries. Oh, I, well, you know what? I got a lot of support in that neighborhood. I want that neighborhood in my ward. I want this neighborhood in my ward. Uh, don't tell me that you can draw these things objectively and not keep that in mind. I don't think it's possible. And, and that's why they hired Watson and Associates. These people are experts in this. They've been doing this for years in Ontario. 
you know, since amalgamation, Toronto was 1998, I think, when they got amalgamated. Um, they've been doing these studies for years. They have a set criteria that they follow. And, and council was smart enough to hire them. Where council failed is they didn't take their advice. And, and that's what I'm fighting. So how, how do you proceed in a situation like this now? What do you, what do you want to see happen? Uh, you're, you're not advocating for one model over another. You're just saying that the, what council's proposing is, or are you? We are. Okay, we've made a technical and strategic decision to say you have to pick one of the two options presented. We picked one. That's the 15-ward option. Once again, we did that for some technical reasons and some strategic reasons. I will say here that I would be equally happy if they'd picked one or the other. They were both good solutions. I like the 16-ward option because it gave the mayor a more meaningful vote. Um, I kind of wish council had picked that, but uh, as we proceed with this, and that'll get fleshed out as the appeal process carries on why we picked uh, option two, as, as it was called, the 15-ward option. Now, were you familiar with the procedure that, that is followed here about the OMB and, the, and, and that that was really about the only uh, option that was open to those that were upset with the way council handled this? Yes, yes. I mean, um, I, I've been following this one closely, um, and it's the only option I have to, anyone has, or any Hamilton has, is to go to the OMB, and it, it's very upsetting Council knows this is going to fail. They know it. They know that once this goes to OMB, this is going to crash and burn. And I have to ask everybody that's listening, why would you pass something that you know is going to fail? Because it takes it off their plate. And I, I, forgive me, I know people are going to say, oh, you're just being cynical and you're just taking shots at councillors. We had the same issue, and there have been other issues where they've done this, where they voted knowing full well that if this gets challenged, they're going to lose the challenge. And it's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars to go to the OMB to, to, to fight this. But they do it anyway because they can go back to the residents that were opposed to this and simply say, well, we tried, and you know the OMB shot us down. They have a responsibility as elected officials. To, to take on the tough tasks and to make decisions about them. You can't keep kicking things down the can, down the road. Yes, and it has to be dealt with now. And, um, and, and other cities have. I know you've done yes, some research on this. Lots, lots. I mean, most cities in Ontario actually have had to do this process, and it's been painful in many of them, and it's going to be a little painful here. Um, you know, it's just there's a basic fairness that's being ignored. Um, I understand that some communities feel they're going to be slighted. Uh, things are changing. Change is scary. That's the LRT argument you hear too. Change oh, yeah. is scary. There's a lot of change going in Hamilton. We're growing, we're evolving. Um, and I think the best way to move forward is with a, a fair and equitable ward system. Here's the thing. You're a Stony Creeker, okay? Uh, some of the councillors who are representing your areas, as a matter of fact, I think all of them at one time or another have made this argument, as they have in Dundas and as they have in even my councillor in Ancaster, who I have great respect for, but we agree to disagree on this particular issue, is that they say, well, you know, you're going to lose community character. And, you know, this is a, a line. It's a boundary. I mean, you are proud to be in Stony Creek. I'm proud to live in Ancaster. I really don't care where the boundary is. I, I'm still an Ancaster. It doesn't make much difference. It's a neighborhood. A creaker's a creaker. You know, you, the, the wards downtown, they have so many, the Crown Point, uh, Beasley, all these other neighborhoods. Sure. You're a piece of that. And, and nobody really cares. And how many times have our federal and provincial wards have been uh, divided? Well, the last federal election. Exactly. We, we just, we voted in the last federal election with new boundaries, the ridings as opposed to wards, obviously. 
uh, and, and some of them had to make decisions. And I was, you know, we commented at that time, Mark, as, as the federal government was going through this process. And by the way, it wasn't the federal government that was doing it because they don't touch it. Because they, they simply get it and say, here's the way it's going to be. Yeah. There's an independent body that does all this. They had public hearings. And just as we expected, a lot of the elected representatives went to those public meetings and said, don't change anything. Of course not, because they want to get reelected. Mm-hmm. Some of them had to make hard choices. You know, David Sweet, who was uh, the MP for, for the Ancaster area, had to make a choice because they developed a new riding. He decided to go to the other one. He was successful. And, and the people in Ancaster had selected somebody else, Philip Natassi. It happens. And... It's happening at federally. It's going to happen in the next provincial election, of course, when they adopt the same boundaries. But the city of Hamilton just doesn't seem to get their head around this. They don't. And I mean, I'm as you said, I'm still a creaker. That's that's what I am. But I'm voting with Waterdown. If you look at my riding, I'm on the mountainside. It's it's that horseshoe right around the whole city. But do I feel disconnected from my community? In no way. And nobody does. I, I really find that argument a little precious, personally. If you were to stop uh, 10 people who are downtown Stony Creek today, go down King Street, okay, uh, and whether they're going to the pizzeria or they're going to the, wherever, the powerhouse, whatever, and say, what ward are you in? I, I bet you eight of the 10 wouldn't know, but they know they're from Stony Creek. It's confusing. It's a bit of nine. It's a bit of 10. It's a bit of 11. Um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting setup with that. It's funny how like nine dips down a bit from the mountain into Stony Creek, but just a piece of it. If you've looked at those maps that were produced by Watson, they're clean. You know, they're nice divisions. They're not, um, they're not ridiculous. They weren't cobbled together from pieces to make a whole. It looked at integrating everything in the city. Well, That's why I like well, them. Well, but yeah, because we talked to them as they were going through this process, and we talked to them after the initial, the final report. It's still sitting in my office on my desk. And, and they did take into consideration community hubs and neighborhoods. Absolutely. And, and I think they've included that and, and probably better than some of the ones that, that, you know, the existing map that we have right now that city council decided to do. Downtown's not going to be affected. I mean, if you live in the Duran neighborhood, you're still downtown. That's not going to change. Uh, you know, same thing with the west end of the city but, and the same thing with the mountain. But the mountain is growing. I mean, when I was on council, Mark, and you remember those days uh, way back when, uh, we were, you know, wow, there's 53,000 people in Ward 7 alone. Well, now it's, it's what, what 12,000 more than that. And, and with all due respect to, to Scott Duval, who was serving there, and now Donna Skelly, that's too big a ward when you consider that there are other wards right now that don't have that kind of population but still have equal representation. So in other words, 13,000 people in one end of the city have the same voting power as 63,000 people in another end of the city? It's, well, it's unconstitutional, and it's been ruled on that. But, I mean, the highest growth is in the wards 11, 9, and 15. We're going to have a 12% growth in 10 years. 10 years, 68,000 people. We've got to address that. We can't have these boundaries that we have now and not look at future trends, too. These reports were done for three election cycles. That's what these recommendations were for. They were looking way into the future. So what's the process? What do you do now? You, f- you filed with the Ontario Municipal Board. We've uh, we filed. Uh, the, uh, the city of Hamilton has to look at it. Uh, they'll come back to us. I've uh, retained a, uh, a lawyer, Craig Burley, a local um, tax lawyer. He's not a specialty, but he's learning a lot very fast. Craig's a fire. We all are, aren't we? Yeah, you know, Craig's a powerhouse. He's been doing great. Um, and uh, they're going to come back to us, and we'll see how it proceeds. I'm new at this. I'm, I'm just a citizen. I'm just a guy. This is not something I do all the time. I'm you're, learning you're as not, I go. You're not one of those quote-unquote activists? Uh, I could be considered that. <laughs> I mean, I, when I find something unjust, I'll pop my head up. You know, and I've been in a few things around the city that I haven't been happy about. 
Um, but um, yeah, but yeah. those those are what I call concerned citizens. Yes, that's I mean what you're I a feel. taxpayer. You, you you care about the community, uh, and why shouldn't you get involved in this? I mean, mm-hmm. there are times when elected officials want us to just kind of sit back and just let them do what they want to do and, and not say anything about it. Mm-hmm. But it's you know every now and then something comes up like LRT, like ward boundaries, where you say, wait a second, this is going to have an impact on me. Huge, yes. You know, and, and as to the argument about affecting communities, I'd just like to say one thing. You know, the average ward side is uh, 37,600. 25% difference of that is 9,400. So the biggest ward should be 47,000, the smallest ward, 28,000. There's a huge variance there to fit communities in. This, the span is, I mean, the, the actual federal, they look at a 5% variance. Yeah. We're looking at a 25% variance. There's, there's huge flexibility to fit communities in and make everyone feel included. So I don't understand that argument. And, and um, I don't understand why council did this once again. I, I just think they know this is going to fail. And I think, honestly, their game is to, to hopefully it was going to pass and no one would challenge it. Number two, if someone did challenge it, I think their game is to delay. They just want to delay this till the next election cycle. But that's what they've been doing for 17 years. Oh, yes. They want another round. They want to go in as incumbents one more time, you know, and have that seat that they know the communities, like you said, they know that neighborhood, and they want to have that one shot, and then they know this is going to be dealt with. So I'm worried about them delaying this process at OMB. Yeah, but if they do that, and, and you know, let's face it, there's going to be an, another election next year, right? Uh, do they all get reelected, which is probably going to happen? Uh, do they hire another consultant for $170,000 and go through this charade again? I would think that if, if it doesn't get uh, settled in time for the next election, I think the, the appeal that I've put in is still live. Um, so it might be after they get elected, uh, which is disappointing. But uh, I'd like this for our next municipal election. I want to see these boundaries change for our next municipal election in November 2018. Okay, now, but you filed. Now, as you mentioned, the city has to respond to this, but uh, they have to respond to the OMB. I mean, they can't drag the puck anymore here, can they? No, they can't. No, they can't. And it's quite clear. I mean, in their own report, you know, they had six key principles that had to be followed. These have been established since 2005 in Ontario. And they fail with this current bylaw on five of them. And the past, we failed on five of them. They've done nothing to improve things. They've actually made things worse with uh, going from seven wards being out of compliance to, sorry, five to seven. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how the city responds. Um, and obviously, I mean, if, if it, I mean, there are a couple of scenarios here. If they don't, if they just simply let this thing sit, the OMB is still going to hear your side. Yes. And if there's nobody there to, to defend the city side, uh, well, it's a ridiculous thing. I'm sure they'll send somebody. Uh, but it's going to cost a lot of money. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, we've had a big, big report coming out about consultant fees. You know what we don't talk enough about is lawyer fees. You know, we're sending our city lawyers and our, the firms that they retain out on wild goose chases sometimes that they know are going to fail or possibly going to fail. Why are we doing that? What's the cost involved there? I mean, we've talked consultants. How about we start talking about our legal fees? Well, uh, the, the most blatant example we remember in the recent past anyway was uh, was when Linwood Hall tried to relocate uh, just a few blocks away to another area. And uh, council knew. I mean, staff said, do this, let them do this, and council voted it down. It went to the OMB, cost us tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, for, and, and eventually, you know, council got smacked up by the OMB and said, you've got to allow them to do this. 
you know, that's it, 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 here we are. Council is coming on here during the budget. And there's going to be a meeting today, of course, at City Hall. Yes. Their annual, you know, their, their biweekly council meeting. And they're all going to get up there and talk about how they're fighting for the taxpayer and they're going to try to be as frugal as possible. But they're throwing money away at the OMB hearing right now that they shouldn't be spending at all. This is something they could have and should have done earlier. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I hope, I hope your listeners call the counselors. Find out who your counselor is if you don't know. Call them and ask them what's going on with this bylaw that you know is going to fail, that it's going to cost us tens of thousands. It's not thousands, folks. It's going to be tens of thousands of dollars. And I have a lot of guilt I'm carrying by putting this forward because I know I'm costing the city money by challenging this. But I, I felt that it was so unjust. This bylaw for this ward boundary change is just so out of line. I felt I had to proceed. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is rather interesting. On the heels of the uh, troubling report we had uh, from the auditor about how the city does business, about consultants and and money that many people think is being wasted and the outrage that resulted in that, uh, on the heels of that comes another report that city councillors were presented with the other day. Uh, and it's a damning report, according to the Bay Observer, uh, that talks about low morale in one department, non-existent communication, poor business practices, failure to meet provincial standards. That's uh, pretty important stuff. It's all about the Ontario Works Department, but it didn't seem to raise very many eyebrows at City Council. Where's the outrage about this? Good question. Let's ask Donna Skelly. She's the City Councilor for Ward 7, who raised some of those questions uh, when she first saw the report, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Donna. How are you today? I'm great. Good morning, Bill. Let me. This is this is like bad news upon bad news when you get this report. Uh, why why not the, the the outrage that we saw with the auditor's report? I mean, this is a, clearly an, an indication, and I think, and a characterization of another city department that seems to be in in turbulent times. Well, the, the history behind the report is quite fascinating. Uh, it came to light, really, if it hadn't been for uh, Councillor Chad Collins, we probably wouldn't even have it before us today. It was released uh, quite a while ago. It was over a month ago. But um, a year ago, two years ago, the report was commissioned uh, by Council to look into uh, the state of the Ontario Works Programme. In March of 2016, the consultants presented the report to staff, and uh, we were never given that report. There was a verbal update with no mention whatsoever of the findings in the report that are so scathing, uh, a, a verbal update to one of the committees, Emergency and Community Services, but that, and that was in the summer. But again, no reference whatsoever to the harsh findings that are outlined in the report. It wasn't until, I believe, Councillor Collins insisted he'd heard the rumblings of a, a scathing report and it wasn't presented that we were given access to it. So that alone really, you know, raised red flags for me. Well, what it should. It should. I mean, it was council that, the, the council that asked for this, right? Yes. And, and, and council was not given it. Uh, and these, by the way, were, well, I hate to use that word again, but these were consultants that did this study, that did uh, the department study on this. But did, did have you asked staff why it took so long to, for councillors to actually see this? And, and I don't know, like you say, if, if Councillor Collins hadn't said anything, it sounds to me as if he still wouldn't have seen it. Exactly. And we were given, well, you know, you were given a verbal update. It's not like we were hiding it from you. And that's the comment I believe Councillor Green uh, mentioned that he thought I was insinuating that there was a conspiracy theory. And, and the reality is, why wasn't this report given to council? It, it was harsh, and it called for staff reductions. 
It called for a realignment of managing the caseload. It addressed the fact that despite the fact that the recession had passed, we we maintained a a higher level of of, uh, staff complement. It addressed the fact that people are staying on uh, Ontario Works longer than they should. They're not seeking employment. They're not finding employment. It looked at a number of things that were quite startling and quite shocking. And the response was, well, you know, we'll we'll look at it. We'll do this. We'll do that. When I was first, uh, the, the problem I have is we've we've had a couple of, if not more, pretty shocking and, and disturbing reports come before council. And I've only been on council a year. And, and they're, they're pretty damaging. So I think it's time that we look at what's happening at a senior management level and find out why these things were happening. Now, Chris Murray yesterday, uh, on Monday, uh, said, following the latest report on the, on the um, consultants, which was just another scathing report, said that he is really trying to address this. And, and I trust him. Uh, I just hope that we can get this under control because when we do bring in a, an auditor to look at how departments are being run, the findings are not uh, very good. You did make a comment, though, at the meeting the other day, Donna, where you suggested, and I think you were talking about the auditor's report, but I'll, I'll lump that in with uh, this thing about Ontario Works, that uh, that these kinds of reports test your confidence in, in, in management. Uh, do you, Is it still unwavering or do you have some concerns here? I do have concerns, and I think the problem is nobody wants to work for a manager that doesn't trust you, and nobody wants to work in a harsh, ugly environment. It's, it's, it's horrible to have to work in those circumstances. And so I think for the most part, council has really given, has really trusted senior managers to, and, and put their trust in them and, and, and believe that they were doing what they could to run an efficient um, healthy department, but we're finding more and more that that isn't the case. And uh, I think we have to look at why. What has happened? What is the culture? Why are we, uh, perhaps it's our fault at council for not being, um, have, making them more accountable to us. Uh, I will go back to Ontario Works. I remember in the fall uh, saying to the um, supervisor in charge, the manager in charge, that we should not be keeping these additional staff that had been hired to deal with the SAMS issue. Now it was a temporary hire of 30 people for a year. It moved into two years, and now we were on the third year, and they're asking for an extension. And I said, at what point do we do we deal with SAMS and 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 go back to our, our original staff complement prior to the SAMS, which is a, um, a system that the province uh, implemented a. a a software system to deal yeah, with Ontario yeah. Works cases. It's a called very the, it's called the system. yeah the social assistance management system. We talked about it at the time it was implemented. Nobody very likes flawed. it. Nobody very likes flawed. it. No, there isn't very one municipality that says, "Hey, that's a great tool." They basically said, "Get rid of it," but but you're stuck with it. So so you yeah, hire extra staff, but but they're still but on. That was three years yeah. ago, and you know, at what point do you say, "Okay"? So Councillor Whitehead and Councillor Collins were pushing, and it was Councillor Whitehead who said, "Look, in the budget deliberations." You've got to start addressing it. So they agreed to to um, address that, and they're going to eat this year, um, go back to the original complement. But he also said our caseload versus other caseloads in the province is quite low. In other words, I think it's at 110 um, cases per, per staff person, and, and the average is, is much higher. So we've agreed to increase the caseload to 120 again. 
But there also has to be outcomes. We can't just keep people on Ontario Works. The objective is to get them off Ontario Works and to get them a job. Well, what's, talk, talk to that. me about that protocol, Donna, because from what I saw from the report anyway, uh, there, there are two main functions with Ontario Works. One is to get, offer immediate assistance to people that, that are, are unemployed right now. We get that, and, that's, and it's great, and I guess we do a wonderful job of that according to the numbers. But the other is, to, as you say, to get them back into the workforce. Uh, and those are two separate departments within Ontario Works, and what this consultant report seems to indicate is that one department doesn't even talk to the other department. So there seems to be a big gap in between there. Absolutely. And the end result was people staying on Ontario Works far too long. And the report also outlined things as showing up for meetings late and still agreeing to meet with the client instead of saying, look, if you're going to, we're trying to get you a job, you're going to have to be more responsible. You're going to have to show up on time. There didn't seem to be uh, um, any sort of desire or support to push these clients to be more responsible for uh, looking for, for seeking work and, and, and um, cooperating, I guess, with their caseworkers to get off of Ontario Works. I mean, nobody wants to be on Ontario Works forever. And I think that staff are trying, but there seems to be, again, as you said, a disconnect and also the wrong messaging from the top down as to what their role is, whether they're there to cater to the client or are they there to help the client get off Ontario Works. Well, the answer is both, isn't it? I think so. And the, again, that that didn't seem to be the case. It wasn't, <clears throat> excuse me, enough push to say we've got to get you a job and we've got to get you, you, you've got to get back into the community and on your own two feet. I think most people really do want that, but there just seemed to be that message wasn't wasn't filtering down to the staff who are actually working with these people who are on Ontario Works. In a broader sense, Donna, there's a, another line here that I find seems to be almost a common occurrence now when there's an evaluation done, poor morale within the department. Uh, we've heard about that in Public Works. We've heard about that now in the Ontario Works Department and, and, and a number of other reports that have come forward in the last little while. Does that concern you? Yes and no. Uh, one thing that came out on Monday's report, on the consultant's report, is that managers don't seem to know the skill sets of the staff, which surprised me and, and, and bothers me because I think that money is, is uh, clearly a motivating issue, but a lot of times people just want the ability to uh, be respected and challenged and to be able to contribute. And I think that that is paramount to um, to in improving the culture in the workplace if you respect your staff and recognize their abilities. And I hope that that is addressed. Uh, Chris Murray, our, our city manager, said he is looking at that. And I think that that all contributes to poor morale. Um, I've heard that before. I'll be honest with you. This is one of the best jobs I've ever had. So the ability to work for the city, I think, is, you know, we have, we are very blessed. We really are. So in many ways, I say, you know, don't, don't forget that this is still a very, very good job. But if you don't feel that you're contributing uh, as much as you possibly can or that you're being respected, then there's a problem. And I think that uh, our city manager is, is suggesting, he's promising, he's assuring us that he will be addressing these things. And I hope he does. Because we need to run the city far more effectively and efficiently. And as I said, if it hadn't been for Councillor Collins, and I mean this, he has really pushed um, and, and uncovered, if you will, a number of, of serious problems in, in the operation of, of many city departments. And, and I kudos to him. I mean, if, there, if ever you want somebody who knows what's happening in terms of dollars 
and um, management of, of different departments, it really is Councillor Collins. And again, I'll give him credit. If he hadn't pushed for this report, I don't think we'd know that today. Yeah, we've had, obviously, Chad's been on on a couple of different issues uh, about these things, and, and I concur with that when it comes to number crunching. But I want to get back to this morale thing, because I, I find it troubling that it car- keeps cropping up. But I find the statement itself, and I, I don't know if it's just kind of a, a key thing that consultants love to throw into reports about low morale. It's rather a benign statement, Donna, unless there's some context to it. I mean, is, is, the, is the morale low because the workload's too much? Is it because they're, 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 you know, they're not doing the job they think they should be doing? Is it because their boss is being a, a jerk to them? I don't know these things. And, and until you actually fill in the blanks on this thing, I mean, I, this is the sort of thing that senior staff are supposed to do is to try to explore what's going on and, and then obviously address the shortcomings. Well, I will be honest with you. We were never really given true answers. The senior manager in charge of the department for the past three years did not show up for the meeting to explain um, the contents of this report. It was the meeting that we were going to be discussing it. Uh, she and it was going on holidays the next day and, and sent us an email just prior to the meeting saying she wouldn't be able to attend. So that really left a gaping hole in terms of accountability and explanations. So that was a huge issue. And now we have a new manager running the department who was, it's a temporary position, but and who has been there and, and promised to address all of these things. But when you don't have the top person able to uh, address these issues, you're left with trying to connect the dots. We had heard rumors uh, as you've finished up the budget process, and uh, hopefully that's going to be happening in the well, maybe this afternoon, even at council. But anyway, uh, that there were going to be further staff cuts. Uh, I, we're looking at some of these numbers and the overstaffing, and I think that's probably a very appropriate phrase here uh, at Ontario Works. Uh, is this one of the do- departments that's being targeted? Yes. Uh, we are looking at, uh, uh, we're looking right across, right across the city. And um, we certainly did look at all of the recommendations in the report, and it certainly was addressed. And um, that a lot of that will be coming out after tonight's meeting. You mentioned there's a new manager uh, running this uh, program right now. I believe now. it's temporary. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, was there any discussion at all about addressing some of the concerns raised by this consultant's report? With the new manager? Yeah. Oh yes, we did have we did have a um, a follow up meeting, and and this the new manager, the temporary manager, was addressing uh, a lot of the questions that were raised. Um, but again, you know, I would have preferred to have been able to speak to the person who had been in charge of the of the entire department in the last uh, number of years when this report was uh, the, the report was focusing on. But that person simply wasn't unavail- was unavailable. Uh, they, are they still at the corporation? Yes. Okay, just they're in a different capacity now. Yes. So they still could and probably should at some point uh, be sitting in front of counselors and, and answering some of these questions since they were the ones sitting in that chair at that time. I would have preferred that, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> well, that's another question worth asking, isn't it? Why, why the, the people that are responsible, the staff members responsible, why were they not at the meeting, especially the follow-up meeting? Well, you know, we, we tend to be, and it goes back to we tend to... Um, here after the fact don't worry about it we'll deal with it and i'm thinking well really is that is that enough is that good enough i i i I wish we would have had the opportunity it certainly raised my eyebrow about uh not that person not being in attendance to to address these issues but 
um, I, I don't think we're going to have that opportunity. Well, here's the, the thing that I find frustrating, and you must as a counselor, Donna, when you hear somebody in senior management say something like, don't worry, we're addressing these things now. Hey, we've got a plan. And then you get another report. Well, two of them that have come out in the last couple of days, the Ontario Works report that we're talking about here, and, of course, the, the consultant's report about, uh, about the hiring of consultants and things of this nature. And when you look at some of the numbers and some of the facts presented in those reports, when management said, don't worry, we got this, you got to say, really, do you? Because I, I don't see a whole lot of evidence that you do. You know, I, I have to say I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Not only uh, evidence that you do, but what kind of accountability? What are the repercussions to a lot of these decisions? And I'm not seeing that. And that that makes me nervous when I suggested on Monday that I, I was, my confidence was being tested. I mean that. I, I We've only been there a year, and we've had some pretty harsh um, reports come forward on how the city is being managed. And, you know, I don't think there's a person on that table that doesn't trust and like Chris, Mur- uh, Chris Murray tremendously, really. They have a lot of respect for him. I just want to see – I don't want to see this back again in front of us, ever. But I also want to see accountability. I mean, you can't continue to have this kind of um, criticism come forward and not say, well, this is what we've done about it. Can't just say, well, you know, we're going to go back after the fact and look at things. Well, how did we get to this to this point? And clearly somebody is doing something wrong or simply isn't doing their job. And I haven't seen the level of accountability that I think we should be seeing at this at this level of, of uh, management within a multi-billion dollar corporation. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. You may have heard there's a, a debate going on in the community right now about light rail transit. You're not aware of that? Oh, okay. <laughs> Where have you been then? Uh, and obviously the next meeting for the uh, the committee, uh, the City Hall Committee, of course, is uh, coming up on the 19th of this month in just a few days. Uh, and in anticipation of that and what may well be a vote that could either move this project forward or stall it again, uh, both sides, both the pro and the anti sides of the LRT, are starting to speak up and trying to get uh, as much attention and support, obviously, for their side of the issue. Uh, there's a rally course coming up at City Hall on the Saturday. But the McMaster Student Union is weighing in on this right now. They're speaking up about LRT. Uh, they are launching a campaign today to encourage students to be vocal in this conversation. Uh, Blake Oliver is the Vice President of Education at McMaster Students Union, and she's with us here to talk about this. Good morning. Thanks for coming in today, Blake. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Bill. Okay, now you're not a native Hamiltonian. That's correct. But uh, obviously you're going to Mac, so you're living here in the area right now. You're a living guy just not too far from the Mac campus now. Uh, Talk to us about your involvement in this and, and getting involved in what is a rather contentious debate here in the city. Absolutely. So like you said, I'm the vice president education of the McMaster Students Union. So it's my job to advocate on behalf of students. And the MSU has long been a supporter of LRT since before I even came to McMaster. Um, Of course, there's been a lot of developments within LRT within the past few years. Two years ago, when the provincial government came down and invested a billion dollars into LRT, it was great news for students. I actually remember being in the room when Kathleen announced that. that, Yeah, Yeah, that was one of the first things I did in my tenure of student advocacy was attend this event. Um, And at the time, I didn't have quite the understanding that I do now about transit advocacy in the province, but I still knew that it was a huge, significant investment. And the more that I've been in this line of work, the more I've really felt that way. Um, So 
since that time, we've had counselors continue to debate whether or not this investment is something that we should capitalize on, um, which to students is very troubling. As you know, the LRT is supposed to begin at McMaster and run all the way down to the Queenston traffic circle. So for students, staff, and faculty at McMaster, it's particularly important to connecting us to different areas of the city, and particularly for students, because a lot of students rely on public transit to get around. Not a lot of us have cars um, or can afford to Uber or taxi where we need to go. We heavily rely on public transit to get there. Well, and it's like that in every university city, isn't it? I mean, you know, here at McMaster, I, you know, I've told our listeners that, you know, our oldest daughter, when she was in London, I mean, you know, when she moved off campus, and you usually do right after your first year, if you can get in campus in the first place, you always get place. it's got to be near a transit line. Because, you know, oftentimes it's a city that you're not totally used to, and you need to know that you can get from point A to point B. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And especially in Hamilton, um, throughout my year serving as vice president of education, another municipal issue that comes up a lot is student housing. So um, anyone who lives around McMaster would know that the Ainsleywood and Westdale communities are overwrought with students. We have students living in houses that have up to 10 people in them. There's a lot of dense student housing in the area, um, and it causes a lot of issues within the community. So a lot of times it's spoken about, why don't we have students living downtown? Why don't we have students living maybe a little bit further from campus? And the reason is that it's hard to get to campus from those places. Sometimes buses can be inconsistent, especially on the weekends. Having something like an LRT will allow students to expand and live elsewhere in the city, but still go to McMaster and be able to access campus really easily. Well, one of the things that uh, we've been discussing here in the city for quite some time, of course, to do with McMaster and with Mohawk, uh, is is student residents of downtown. And you go to some of the major American cities like Boston and Chicago and New York, obviously, the campuses sometimes are downtown, but the, the, the student residences are clearly downtown. I think there's something like seven or eight universities within the downtown core of Boston. Uh, Chicago has two or three. Loyola and, and Northwestern are right down there, right downtown. And want to see that with McMaster, too. But the, the, the story we always got when Peter George was the president, now with Patrick Dean, is look at you've got to have better transportation systems for us for the students to get back and forth. I mean, you have to look after their well-being and welfare at all. So, and I get that. And this sounds to me to be the solution that you guys have been looking for. Definitely. And already there's some plans to build student residences downtown. Specifically, I believe there's a plan to build a graduate student residence mm-hmm. downtown, which is fantastic. Um, there's obviously so many benefits to students living downtown. They're able to contribute economically a lot more to the downtown core, as well as socially, being able to get to volunteer placements, hold a job downtown. Those are all things that students want to do. But when we're living all in Ward 1 in the Ainsleywood Westdale bubble, we're not necessarily exposed to what's going on in James Street or what's going on in Ottawa Street. Um, so to be able to have students live down there, it will, one, alleviate the concerns of the community of having such a densely packed student housing in those areas, but also allow students to feel like Hamilton is their home and contribute more to the city. There was a survey that was done. This is before you were in, in the, the student council or the student association of administration. But about the number of students uh, who live either on campus or very close to the campus that never leave the west end of the city. Is that changing? I think this, is, this was about five or six years ago. Yeah, I think it has changed within recent years. Um, certainly, perhaps not to the extent that we'd like it to. From the MSU's perspective, we do a lot to try to integrate students with the community. We have one service that we call, it's student run, um, it's called the Student Community Support Network. And that service runs various campaigns, engage 
aimed at engaging students in the city. So we run a Discover Your City campaign every year where we encourage students to check out Pier 8 or check out the art gallery, um, go downtown, have dinner at a restaurant. Um, McMaster as well has a lot of different things that they're working on to try to engage students in the community. Um, last year when I was a student, I took a new course called Community Engagement to AO3, um, which was aimed at getting students to engage meaningfully in the community. And now that course has um, developed into an entire minor that any student can take. It's an interdisciplinary minor um, from any program, which will allow them to engage in the city further. McMaster's also partnered with the city in City Lab, which is also aimed at having students foster meaningful connections, not only McMaster students, but Mohawk students um, and Redeemer students as well. So I think there's a lot of initiatives that are going on and have been going on in the past five or six years that are, are trying to change that, that are trying to get students more out of that bubble. But it still remains a consistent problem. And transit, of course, is one of those reasons why. Well, obviously, and, and we've seen some of those outreach programs in McMaster and, and Mohawk, you're right, have been very, very engaged in a number of programs and, and actually in some cases even going into some of those neighborhoods with, uh, with outreach programs and uh, they're to be commended for that. But how difficult is it to get students engaged in issues like this? Uh, you know, let's face it, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot of time since I've been, you know, post-secondary, but I mean, you know, you're oftentimes in a different city. I mean, there's a lot of people that go to the McMaster University, of course, that are not from here originally. And you're, you're involved and in, in sometimes consumed with your studies and, and, and of course, you know, university life, et cetera. Uh, it's it's got to be difficult for some of those students to actually, you know, give a damn about something like LRT or student housing unless it's, uh, it, it ultimately reflects on them. How do you how do you motivate that student body to get involved and, and to, to be a voice in this discussion? For sure. I think there's two parts to that. So speaking from my own experience, I was a student who came to Hamilton f- Um, to go to McMaster, had never before lived in Hamilton or even visited Hamilton. Um, But I still had a need to get out of the McMaster bubble. Everyone does. You need to get groceries. You want to get dinner with your parents when they come to visit or your friends. You want to go for drinks with your friends on a Friday night. Those are all things that you can't necessarily get at McMaster. Um, So for a lot of students, they're aware of the difficulty about getting off campus and trying to achieve those types of things. Um, As well, there's a second part to the puzzle, which is not only engaging students while they're at McMaster, but students, once they graduate, are going to go work somewhere. Um, Hamilton is a rapidly expanding city that has put a lot of stake into economic development, um, bringing, attracting jobs into the city. um, And graduate retention has consistently been a conversation that the city has had. How can we entice McMaster students to stay here? And from this, from the student side, um, a lot of students will be here for four years, connect with the city. I know I certainly have. Um, I don't have plans to move back to my hometown. I'd love to be able to stay in Hamilton after I graduate. However, students want a city that works for them. This generation of students wants a city that has accessible transit that's affordable. This generation of students wants affordable housing. They want a city they can work in and play in and enjoy. They they want a city with parks. They want all of these types of things that um, they perhaps aren't getting right now in Hamilton. And transit is a really big piece of that. Um, the better, in my view, the better transit that we have, um, the more we're going to attract businesses and investors that are going to make Hamilton in the type of to the, into the type of city that students will want to stay in and work after they graduate. And I think for students, that's a big motivating factor for LRT. We know LRT is not going to be here when we're here, um, but maybe it will be if we stick around. We want to live in a city with LRT. Well, that's uh, just reminding me of that old phrase, you know, the, the, the wise man is the one that will plant a tree, not knowing that he'll enjoy the shade in it, but knowing that future generations will. Uh, and I, 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 I'm right on side with your point there. I think you make all kinds of sense about that, Blake. You know, 
because sometimes, and I'm sure you've heard this in the past, especially with this debate, uh, there are some that will dismiss uh, the voice from the university, especially from the student body, and say ah, most of them are just visiting here. And I said, you know what, that's up to us if they're just visiting or not. If we make this an attractive city and offer some of the things that you've just talked about, you'll think about sticking around here. If you can find a job and an affordable house, this is maybe where you started. I don't know how many students, and in some cases ex-students from McMaster I've talked to, from the uh, the Innovation Park uh, that are, are doing startups here, starting their own companies here. And uh, they're not from Hamilton, but they like the environment here. They like what's going on with the Innovation Park and the university, and they like what's going on downtown, and they love the restaurants here. So they're starting their businesses here, and they're living here. If we want, as a city, want more of that, we've got to give people like you the tools to, to make this a better city. Absolutely. I, and I would say if we were really just visitors, we wouldn't even get involved in this fight. Why should I care if LRT exists in Hamilton in 2024 if I'm not going to be living here? I care because I want to live here. And I think students feel the same way. So what's going to be happening? How does the student body get that message out there? And how to, who do you talk to and, and, and how do you try to, to change this debate? Well, from our understanding, like you mentioned earlier, Bill, the meeting on April 19th is going to be a really important one for LRT. Um, It's generally a procedural motion that's coming up. Council has to approve the environmental project report. They've already spent a day talking about it. Um, And we're pretty aware where some of the councillors stand. Um, My own councillor for Ward 1, Aidan Johnson, has long time been a supporter of LRT. Mm -hmm. So has the mayor, Fred Eisenberger. Um, We have other councillors, Councillor Farr, Councillor Green, Councillor Ferguson, Councillor Marula, who have always been in support of LRT. And we're not concerned about their support. We know they'll support the project. On the flip side, we also have councillors we know who will not support the project. Um, councillors Whitehead, Skelly, etc. That we, that we know are going to oppose the project. So what we're trying to do is purposefully focus on those who are undecided or who haven't publicly stated whether or not they support the project. Um, and the way that we're trying to do that is through having students email in um, to those councillors. So we actually have three different form letters that we're providing students. One to the councillors who do support LRT that we know to thank them for their continued leadership. Uh, one to this, those councillors who oppose the LRT explaining why we think they should reconsider their position. And and the last letter is to the undecided counselors asking them to please support LRT and explaining the reasons why we think transit and LRT specifically is so important to students. Um, so we're trying to get the word out any way that we can. Uh, we launched a video last night. It consists of myself and one of my coworkers kind of explaining some of the issues around LRT and, and why we think it's an important student issue. Now, is that uh, available online? It is. It's uh, available on the McMaster Student Union website as well as our Facebook page. Okay. We'll give that address uh, in a couple of minutes when we finish. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, and then from our site specifically, we have, it's really easy. Students can just click and they have pre-addressed emails. They can add in their own experiences with transit and sign their name um, and send those emails off. We are also encouraging students to use social media um, using the hashtag YesLRT to voice why transit is so important to them. Have you had any feedback at all from City Hall? I have reached out to the counselors who are in support of LRT to give them almost a heads up about the campaign to let them know what the, what we're doing. Um, and so far, the feedback's been really positive. I've heard back from a lot of the counselors, the mayor as well. Um, the mayor is a huge advocate for LRT. You're probably aware he's oh, yeah. speaking at the rally this uh, this Saturday. Um, and he had very positive feedback about what we're doing. Um, I think there's been a lot of positive feedback from those who are, are in support of LRT. Of course, there's been negative feedback from those who are, are against LRT, which is to be expected. Um, but so far, I think it's been. What about positive. the fence sitters, though? How do, how do you how do you try to to make some inroads there? 
I think what we're trying to get at with with those types of people, so the people who are on the fence are from Stony Creek, um, Dundas, and and one from the mountain. Um, Those aren't areas that are going to be directly affected by the LRT. But to be fair, they are areas that students access. Um, I go to Dundas pretty often. I get my blood work done there. I have dinner there. Um, I sometimes go to Stony Creek. I actually used to work right by Stony Creek, um, and I go up the mountain too. LRT won't go there, but there will still be benefits to those areas, whether it be reduced tax burden or increased HSR buses to those areas because we won't have so much heavily reliance on the 10 or the 51 for students that we currently do right now. Um, So I think it's about explaining to those counselors why students are invested in their areas um, and why this project will help students access those areas and contribute economically and socially there as well. The... uh Feedback is always important like this, and obviously from those who support this, I'm not surprised that, that they've immediately responded to you right now. Have you received any insight from, uh, from we'll call them the fence-sitters, that uh, that maybe the, the vote is still open, uh, that, well, we're swinging this way or another? Do you get involved in dialogue with any of them? I haven't so far. We did just launch the campaign last yeah. night, so there's still lots of time. Um, we've I've had conversations trying to understand which way the vote might go for, for some of them, Um with people in the mayor's office and, and various people that are, have been involved. But it seems like for some of them, it's truly a question mark. We really don't know which way they're going to go. Um, so we'll see how it unfolds over the next week, and hopefully we'll hear something back. How do them. you think this has gone? Give me your impression on, on how this debate has swung and, and the way it's gone. Uh, it's characterized by the supporters of LRT that, you know, it's a city that's just been given a billion dollars. Well, they don't have the money. But in other words, we'll build this for you. We'll pay for this, and you guys can benefit from this. And and how do you say no to something like that? Yet some people on council clearly are willing to do that. It's very frustrating, frankly. Um, I, one of my friends put it really well. You can do a lot of things with a billion dollars. You can probably think of infinite things that you can do with a billion dollars. But the city of Hamilton can only do one thing with this billion dollars, and that's to build the Beeline LRT. Um, this isn't a conversation of we maybe we should use it for BRT or maybe we should use it for the A line instead of the B line. That is not a conversation for council to have. It's the province has been very clear um, multiple times about what this money is to be used for. Um, and I think the question is, do we accept the investment or let it go to another community? And to me, the answer is clear. And I think to others, the answer is clear as well. Um, I think in some ways, perhaps this has been moved into a partisan issue, um, specifically with the provincial election coming up. Um, I think we've already seen some uh, some progressive conservative nominees on the mountain saying they would allocate the money in a different way if they were elected, um, which is unfortunate. I, of course, I believe in the beeline route, um, and I don't think this should be a partisan issue. I think this is it's clear to me that the Beeline LRT is positive for Hamiltonians. It's a huge investment. Um, I really, really hope that can- council says yes on the 19th. Now, I, I, see, I want you to stick around. I, <laughs> I, I, I love your attitude. I love your enthusiasm. Uh, and and by the way, the the discipline that you're studying, of course, at McMaster, there's all the, the, you know the world's your oyster here because you know healthcare and healthcare research and development that's going on here at McMaster and the Children's Hospital and the University, of course, is phenomenal. So so I want you to work here after you graduate. <laughs> I want you to be able to get on the LRT someday to be able to do that too. But here's the real question: anybody who's listened to our conversation here over the last couple of minutes is going to ask you this, so I'll ask him on their behalf. When are you going to get into politics? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want you to do well in, in, in health care, but, but at some point you are so well versed in this and, and I love your passion for this. 
Oh, thank you so much. Um, I definitely am interested in, in politics. I think perhaps I'm better suited for behind the scenes work. Um, I've definitely. Oh, I don't know. About that. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how things go. I still have to finish up my yeah. degree in my Bachelor of Health Sciences, and I'm definitely interested in pursuing Master's of Public Administration or Master's of Public Policy after I graduate, um, and seeing you know where my where my skills and passion takes me after after I'm done school. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting you, and 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 as I say, I was so impressed with with the attitude of the, uh, the student union. Here to get involved in something like this and to be proactive on this uh, and get involved in the community in such a big way. And it's I think it's reflective of what uh, the university uh, management has done. Patrick, of course, uh, Patrick Dean has been very vocal about this and very vocal about uh, being a part of the growth of Hamilton. And, the, and McMaster, of course, has played a lead role, I think, in, in the renaissance that's going on here. And I guess the bottom line here is we want to keep that momentum going, don't we? Absolutely. And like you said, McMaster has been a great partner in fighting for LRT. And we've been so happy to see all the initiative they've taken in community engagement over the past few years. Um, and we're going to keep fighting the good fight. Good luck with that. Thank you so we'll much, stay in touch. Oh, the webpage. Yes, the webpage is msumcmaster.ca slash yeslrt. Um, and you can look us up on Facebook as well at McMaster Students Union. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.